So 1 John, we're going to read some from 1 John chapter 2, and then some from the beginning of 1 John chapter 4. And so if you would stand, please, for the reading of the word. Okay, 1 John 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now let's look at First John chapter 4, and read First John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, let's be seated. Take a minute to reflect on the word. All right, pray with me. Dear God, what you see in this passage, this truth is vitally important for our lives. That whether we have the Son, whether we have the Father, whether we have eternity depends on knowing not just this truth, but knowing the person behind the truth, the person that the truth points to. And so I pray that you would help us see the importance of that today. And I pray that you would make these things abide in us because this truth is what we need, not my words, not anything that comes from me, we need your word and the Savior that they point to. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the spirit of Father's Day, I'll start with a dad story. Um, a few Christmases ago, I piled my kids in our van and took them to go Christmas shopping for my wife, Allison. Um, my kids are all pretty young. My oldest is nine now, and so this is, I think this was three Christmases ago. Um, and so my uh, son, Max, is sitting in the back seat of the van. So he's two rows back from me. Can't really see what's going on back there. Um, we pull up into the parking lot of the store, and he says, Dad, I think I swallowed a coin. I said, you think you swallowed a coin? He says, yeah, I think I swallowed a coin. I said, okay, well, 
I guess we're going to the hospital later on today. We know what the agenda is later, but we're here at the store. A coin is not going to kill you. In the next couple hours, you're breathing. And so uh, let's do our thing. And so we go on with our Christmas shopping, and we buy a you know, present for my wife, and we bring it back home. And Max hops out of the van, and he goes to tell my wife when we get home. He says, Mom, uh, I swallowed a coin. And she said, you did? And he said, yeah, actually, I think it might have been a battery. He said, what? Because this is different. <laughs> It turns out that, in fact, uh, my wife had bought some of those little coin-shaped batteries for a, a kitchen scale, I think. Um, they had ended up in the front of the van, and Max had taken one, and he'd put it in his mouth and was just hanging out with it in his mouth because he thought it was a coin. And then something happened when we pulled in the parking lot of the van, and he, or parking lot of the store, and he did, in fact, swallow a battery. Um, so in that moment, though, the truth of that situation really, really mattered. Because it's one thing if a kid swallows a coin. You know, that can cause problems. You might have to have a procedure for that. It's a very different thing entirely if a kid swallows a battery shaped like a coin. And so in that moment, we didn't need to know what Max thought might be the case or what, you know, it, he, started, he saw us start to get scared and was like, maybe it was just a coin. And it's like his feelings about what it might be in that moment weren't really important. We needed to know the truth of the situation because it was, in fact, a matter of life and death. So thankfully, uh, we were able to get the coin out with the simple little procedure, you know, no, uh, uh, you know, incision surgery required. They just did the vacuum cleaner tube thing, and uh, he was fine a day or so later. Um, but uh, it, it was indeed. He swallowed a battery. So that was Christmas. Um, then we got COVID after that, and I had to take a break from preaching. Um, so <laughs> but that's, that's an illustration of what we're talking about today. Uh, there are some truths that, you know, aren't that really important, and there's plenty of things that we can just have a preference about. You know, you have your favorite ice cream, you have your favorite color. Who cares? That's fine. There are some truths, on the other hand, that are matters of life and death, that it is vitally important to get right, because getting them wrong won't mean you have a bad opinion or people think differently of you. It means your life one way or the other. In our First John passages today, are about one set of those truths that are vitally important, not just for our earthly lives, but for our eternal spiritual lives. So John says in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, that this is the promise God has made to us, eternal life. So eternal life is at stake in the truths that John has in mind here. Um, in our affirmation of faith time earlier, we recited a, a kind of a, a text that's a little bit longer than what we usually do. That was part of what's called the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 and then revised in 381. So it's like 1,600 years old. And what it was, was that was an attempt to summarize the Bible's teachings about who Jesus was. So the creed doesn't stand over the Bible. The creed stands under the Bible, where they say, if we look at the biblical data, we look at everything that it teaches about who Jesus is, we distill that down and we summarize it into this statement. And so that's what we uh, recited together as our affirmation, because that affirms sort of the core truths about who Jesus is that every historic Christian church, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, believes today. That Jesus is God from God. It says he is truly God. And he became truly human and everything that came after that. Both of those truths are vitally important for Christians to believe. And that's what John is focusing on today. And so we're going to see what he's getting at and what he wants for us in light of that by looking at three things. 
we're going to look at a temptation, we're going to look at a test, and we're going to look at a task. So a temptation, a test, and a task. First, the temptation. The temptation that John addresses here is letting worldly voices define truth. Letting worldly voices define truth. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, and I'm going to do my best to kind of indicate which passage we're in and where we are. We're going to go back and forth between these two. John acknowledges something that his readers would already have known. The fact that some group of teachers who claim to be Christian teachers, they have left the visible community of the church and the apostles. They've separated themselves. And so let's read chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 again. He says, Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and now I'm telling you many Antichrists are here. Now, depending on your background, what kind of church you grew in, grew up in, you might hear Antichrist and think, whoa, where are we going with this? But it's actually a very simple definition that John has in mind. If you look at verse 22, he writes, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So that's all. An Antichrist is someone who is anti or against Christ. These teachers are denying that Jesus is the Christ and denying something about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, John says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So once again, these false teachers, they're distorting or denying something about the nature of who Jesus is. Something about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Something about the Christ. And that's what makes them Antichrist. They're denying that he was truly God and truly human, like we confessed. Now in a bit, we're going to talk exactly about exactly how they were wrong and why that matters. But before we do that, I want us to see something interesting that John notes about these false teachers. If you look at chapter 4, verse 5, he writes, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So in John, the world is sort of shorthand for the world of people who are outside the Christian church, who don't believe what we believe. And so those are sort of the two groups. There's the world, and its opposite is the church, or us. You know, he kind of describes it as. And John says, these teachers, they're from the world, and the world listens to them. That means that there's something about the way that they're teaching that is more naturally appealing to people outside the church, that it has a more maybe natural resonance or connection than what the apostles are teaching about who Jesus is. See, in the Greek world in that day, most people thought that the physical, material stuff of the world, like our bodies, that it was either bad or just not that important. That what really matters is sort of like your soul or mind or spirit and there's like sort of special knowledge that you have. And so either they thought that you're supposed to kind of ignore or downgrade, just like kind of abuse or punish or neglect your body, or they taught that it doesn't matter whatever you do with your body. You indulge any physical appetite that you've got for food or whatever because none of that counts toward the soul stuff, that that's what's really important. That was a, a belief that was called Gnosticism, if you care about that. Um, so... They thought in light of that teaching, 
there were people were really uncomfortable with the idea that God the Son, that this divine being would take on a physical body and become a human. They thought, like, how, how could he possibly do that? If the, if the physical body, the stuff is so, like, kind of gross or weird or unimportant, then why would God do that? How could that be the case? And so they thought, we need to kind of revise or refine our beliefs about who Jesus is because this stuff feels really true, and so maybe this stuff isn't, it's got to change to fit that. And so that's what they were doing. And that's worth thinking about, that pattern, uh, at least as much as the specific errors, which Gnosticism is not really around anymore. There's a handful of people who call themselves that, but it's pretty gone. Um, But we do face that same temptation in whatever culture we find ourselves in. Research has shown that hearing things a lot makes us more likely to believe them, even if we know they're false. So they've set people in a room and asked a question and had everyone else in the room who was in on the study raise their hands to guess at a wrong one. And pretty often, someone will raise their hand and you know, affirm something that they know is false just because of social pressure. And then hearing something again and again and again, they find that exposing people even to beliefs that they know are false will change them to incline them to think, well, maybe they are true. And so people can be made to doubt or made to believe things just by exposure. So that's a a human phenomenon that's demonstrated kind of out by research. And so there are things that can seem so true or compelling just because we hear them a lot that we can begin to think, maybe I do need to revise my beliefs about Christianity. Maybe I do need to kind of like bend or change this stuff to fit what's sort of floating around me in the world because that seems so loud. And I need to calibrate my faith to that rather than the other way around. For example, you know, beginning a few hundred years ago, when people begin to get enthusiastic about human reason and empirical science, uh, you have the era that's called modernism now. And some people said, well, we just simply can't accept miracles. We can't accept the idea that God, who created the laws of physics, would come into the world and break those laws and do something supernatural which is what like, Christians believe, it's breaking the laws of physics. We don't believe miracles happen all the time. We believe it's a special act of God. But they said, there's no way. We just reject the whole thing accordingly. And so we need to clean up Christianity so that there are no more miracles in it. And so that's how you get like Thomas Jefferson physically slicing bits out of his Bible uh, to make it more palatable. Or people saying like, well, Jesus was really just a human being and he said and taught some nice things and somehow he got these miracle stories glommed onto him along the way and that's what Christianity is. That there's a human Jesus only at the core of it. Um, So that was modernism. When I was in college in the early 2000s, postmodernism, which is a belief that all claims to exclusive truth, including those of modernism, including those of science, are just power plays of trying to earn power for me and my tribe. And so there were people at the time saying, well, if that's the case, now like we believe in postmodernism, then we've got to kind of revise Christianity in light of that instead. So we know that Jesus seemed opposed to earthly power, that he was kind to the marginalized. And so we're going to really emphasize those things uh, of Jesus who cares for the poor, Jesus who wants there to be justice in the world. And then all the stuff about him saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life, we're like, "Mm, maybe we'll not really think about that or talk about that. And so that, uh, there was a a movement that was called Emerging or Emergent Christianity. And when I was in college, it seemed like the future of the faith. It seemed like the way that things were going to go. And then 10 years later, it was gone. You know, 10 years later, there's no more emerging or emergent Christians. They've all left the faith or just totally faded into irrelevance. Um, That movement has gone. 
in our moment right now, the world seems to have political fever. It's sort of like toned down a bit from a couple of years ago, but we have an election coming up, so we'll see how that goes. Um, But we're tempted to adopt a picture of Jesus that looks just like our favorite political party. That's sort of Jesus on the Republican platform or Jesus on the Democrat platform. And so you have social justice Jesus who cares a lot about the poor and marginalized and doesn't really talk about, you know, marriage or sexual ethics. Or you have individual freedom Jesus who doesn't really care about how we treat our neighbors or what we do with our money because he has other things to say. But in both instances, we're tempted to start with a culture outside the faith and then redefine the faith to fit into that culture, to sort of bend or break our beliefs about Jesus so they fit in that mold instead of the other way around. There are so many voices in the world today. There's pundits, there's social media feeds, there's podcasts that, let's be honest, you spend more time with than you do here on a Sunday. It's true for me, too. I don't go back and listen to my own sermons, so I'm, I'm there, too. Um, there's, we have lots of voices in our heads. Most of these folks probably aren't giving you their direct opinions about the deity and humanity of Jesus, but they are communicating something to you about what is true, and about what is good and beautiful, which is, we're going to talk about that more in the next coming weeks. But they are giving you a vision of the world of what they say is true. And if that becomes the loudest voice in your head and in your heart, then it's going to redefine your faith. It's going to be what shapes who you are and what you believe about God and about Jesus and how you live more than these truths are. And so it's really worth taking those voices and just subjecting them, putting them under the scriptures and saying, are they communicating to me something that God agrees is true and good and beautiful? Are they giving me the full picture of who God is and what he wants for the world? Because if they're not, they probably don't need to be in my head, or at least maybe they need to be a snack and not my meal, not my main courses, because we believe what we listen to. Why does that matter? Why is it a big deal Um, If we hold the truths of Jesus lightly, if we let worldly voices define these truths for us. This brings us to the test, the second thing we're looking at. The test is that losing the truth of Jesus means losing everything. Losing the truth of Jesus means losing everything. We already read chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, but let's look at them again. John writes, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So he says that every spirit, every source of teaching that doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. That when it speaks to the nature of God, um, it is coming from a different place. It says that no one who denies the Son, so who denies the full divinity and humanity of Jesus, has the Father. That they're not connected because they're uh, leading in different places. He says this isn't an area where we can agree to disagree or where we're just kind of playing with words. If we misunderstand this, we miss everything because we miss God himself. Chapter 2, verse 25 says that even eternity is on the line, that God has made the promise of eternity to his people. And so missing this means missing eternity itself. So why does he say that? Why does he make such a big deal about the truth about Jesus? 
What matters first, because these are the things that Jesus either said about himself or showed by his actions. Those that John heard or saw Jesus claim. Like we saw two weeks ago in the first verses of the letter, John says, this is what we saw and we heard and we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is the truth. See, John saw the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, a real human being who ate and slept and drank and had dinner parties with people, uh, both before and after he died and rose from the dead. He was a living, breathing human being against the Gnostic kind of teaching, the false teaching of his day. And John also saw him walk on water, raise the dead, forgive sins, which are all things that only God the Father had the authority to do. He heard Jesus say things like, I and the Father are one, which no uh, honest Jewish man in that day would have dared to say. It was blasphemous if it wasn't true. He heard Jesus claim absurd things, things that only a brazen liar or an absolute lunatic would say if they weren't true. And then he saw Jesus die and be raised from the dead three days later, vindicating him. Someone who says absurdly exalted things about himself and then dies is just another cult leader or lunatic. Someone who says things like that about himself dies and then is raised three days later is something completely different. And John and the apostles gave their lives. Their lives got radically worse because they affirmed, they insisted on affirming that these things were true after Jesus had ascended into heaven. So uh, Blaise Pascal, who's a mathematician and Christian, said, uh, I believe the witnesses whose throats get cut. No, that was the kind of witness that John and his folks were. They weren't witnesses to something that made them richer or more powerful. They were witnesses to something that got them imprisoned and killed because they kept on affirming it. They kept on saying it was true. And so that's uh, the kind of claim that John is making. And so it's important that these things, because these things are true. But it's also important because if they're not, Christianity doesn't work. So our actual faith, it doesn't work if Jesus isn't fully God and fully human. See, in their day, the problem was with Jesus' humanity, like we talked about. In our day, um, our problem tends to be with his divinity. There are several major religions or religious groups that speak fairly highly of Jesus in one way or another, and plenty of people think he's like a nice moral teacher. But even the other big religions um, don't think that the Son of God could, or don't think that Jesus could be divine. So Islam says that he was a prophet, but not the final prophet. Uh, The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was a savior of some type and a divine being of some type, but not equal to or one with God the Father. But the problem, even with those views of a relatively exalted view of Jesus, is that Christian salvation doesn't work if Jesus isn't completely God and completely human. To see why it doesn't work, let's look at the Gospel of John, which is John's biography of Jesus, chapter 15. It's on page 901 of your blue Bibles, if you're using those. So the Gospel of John, uh, just called John, uh, 15. And I'm going to read the first six verses of it. This is Jesus talking. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's like we talked about in our confession time. Christian salvation isn't ultimately about obeying the right commands enough or saying the right words. It's about being connected to the right person. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, which means I am the source of true life, that true spiritual life comes only from and through him. And we, every human being, including John and the other apostles, we are branches. And when we come to faith in him, we are sort of taken off of uh, the old branch, the old vine that we're connected to, and we're grafted on to him because that's where true spiritual life is found. He says, every branch that's not connected to me is dead and is good for nothing. So every human by nature is a branch of the tree of Adam. You could call that humanity 1.0. And as we are kind of grown off of that vine of Adam, then we inherit Adam's condition, uh, which is we call sin, which is a fundamental selfishness that sort of poisons everything that we do. And so it doesn't matter what we do, what kind of fruit we bear in our life, that's part of it. You know, maybe you've had like a a tree in your garden or a plant that went bad and just every fruit that comes off of that tree goes bad as well. That's what humanity 1.0 is. And so for us to be saved, for us to be made the branches that we're supposed to be and bear the kind of fruit that we're supposed to bear, we need someone who is both a human being, so another tree, uh, not, you know, some kind of only spiritual being. And we need someone who is absolutely perfect, who doesn't have that curse of humanity 1.0 anymore. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's the vine over there and everyone connected to it. They're going to keep bearing the fruit of that's tainted by sin. But if you come to me, a human being who is also the divine son of God and therefore perfect, free of that curse, then you become part of humanity 2.0. This is from uh, a a matter of spiritual birth, not physical birth. So we're not physically born again, but we're we're spiritually connected to him when we come by faith. And when that happens, that we become joined to him, and that's how we become saved, by abiding in him. And that takes only a fully divine, fully human son of God. Abiding in Jesus means being brought into union with God himself. And so we'll close with what John says to do in light of these things. So given that we're tempted to let worldly voices define truth for us, and given the the life and death nature of this, that eternity itself is at stake on the truth of this question, what do we do? How do we live? And here's the task we're finishing with. The task is to abide in the truth. To abide in the truth. You can flip back to 1 John. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What you heard from the beginning is the apostle's testimony that we talked about already of who Jesus was and what he did. John says, if it's true, it's just as true now as it was when you heard it, you know, for these churches a few decades ago, and it's going to be just as true 2,000 years from now. 
You know, one guy has said that uh, we don't believe that two plus two makes four on a Monday and then say differently on a Wednesday. Uh, it's either true or it's not true. If it's true, it's always true. And John says that's what uh, this is. That whatever crosswinds or headwinds you feel, whatever kind of voices tempt you to revise these beliefs accordingly, um, we can't, or saying we can't believe that anymore, that's no different than saying that we can't believe two makes two makes, or two plus two makes four anymore. Um, it's just as true. It's never going to change. Another word for abide is remain or stay. So John says the truth is there. Just stay in it. Just let it stay in your soul. Whatever pressure you feel, whatever system feels like it's taking you away from it, just let it abide there with you. Because, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there are still people who call themselves modernists, but there aren't very many of them left anymore. Most of them are gone. There are some more people who call themselves postmodernists, but they're not nearly as many as there were uh, in the early 2000s. So that's kind of fading as well. Emerging Christianity seemed like the future in the early 2000s, but it's already a thing of the past. You know, it's less than 20 years later. One Christian uh, journalist named G.K. Chesterton, he writes in one of his books about five huge heresies that each seemed like they were going to redefine Christianity completely. They said, this thing has to be so true because it was around for decades and it accumulated a lot of power that this is going to redefine the faith. So he kind of walks through some of them and he says, at least five times the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. No, which I love. So he says that these things, they come and go. Trends come and go, fads come and go, intellectual movements come and go, and they're just human products. And if they're just human products, they have a lifespan, they have a shelf life, and one day it's going to be gone. And the eternal truths that were established by God through Jesus, they are going to remain. And so a wind will blow through, and then it'll be gone, and the church will still be there. Another wind will blow through, another trend will come, and then it'll be gone. And the faith will still be there because it's a truth established and affirmed by God. And so he says, just stay with it. Stay with the truth. How do we do that? He gives us three kind of concrete ways, and this is where we're going to finish. The first thing he says is to abide in the word. So the, the Bible is the apostle's testimony written down. So it's the written records of the, the in the beginning, the things that you heard, uh, John says. So we have them written down, which the churches would not have had as much written down at the time. And so he says, we abide in the word. Um, we abide in it by meditating on it, by reading it faithfully, by pondering it and with our imagination and our will, by thinking hard about it, by studying it, and then memorizing it so we can take it with us and it can become part of our lives. It can get worked in like yeast gets worked into dough and transforms it into bread. So we meditate on it so that it becomes the loudest voice in our hearts. And it becomes kind of the truth tests for us when we are kind of out and about in the world. And so abiding in the word, meditating on the word, makes our souls deep and stable instead of shallow and fragile and blown around by everything that comes our way. The second concrete action is we abide in the truth by abiding in the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 2, verse 27 John says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So anointing there is another word for the Holy Spirit. 
who is the third person of the Trinity who is given to Christians when uh, they come to faith. So John says, you believed these things at first because the Spirit anointed you, because he was given to you and came to abide in you. He opened your eyes to see that these things were real. He opened your eyes to these truths. Um, Again, like we talked about a few weeks ago, the Spirit doesn't lead us away from the Word because he wrote the Word. Um, So he's going to lead you to these truths that help you see that they are really true. And so that's why John says, you don't have any need that anyone should teach you. He just means you got the truth already that you got the message that you needed. And so part of being connected to Jesus through faith is being filled with the Spirit. And we abide in the Spirit through prayer and through following uh, or actually living out what we find in the Word. And so when we spend time worshiping God in prayer, we spend time connected to Him, we spend time following Him and keeping the things that are in this, we will find them easier to believe than when we're feeling pressure or doubts, if we're filling our minds with other things or our lives with other things. Third, we abide in the truth by abiding in the church. John says in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That's not a statement of arrogance from John. He says, I'm a branch. He's not saying that I'm the vine, that you abide in me. He just says, I'm connected to the right branch. And so that's what he wants as well. He says, what we were doing as the apostles is we were pointing you to the truth. That is still true. And so for us, uh, he says, whoever knows God is going to listen to us, is going to find a family resemblance in the church where we're going to feel the resonance of truth when we spend time among the people of God. So if we want to abide in the truth, We need to find a healthy church, one that upholds the historic truths of Christianity, that upholds the patterns of life in the Bible, and that shows the love of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about in the next two sermons, that how we live and how we love is every bit as important as what we believe. But we need to find a church that confirms those things, that lives those things, and we need to commit ourselves to it, to belong to its community. Christ community is not the only church like that in Wilmington. We have no illusions about that. I think we're a great church. Other people seem to think we're a great church. There are other good churches, but you need to find a healthy church that is more important to you and louder to you in your life than any digital community or any electronically mediated voice. Is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Could it be risky or painful or boring? Yes. All of those things. It can be all of those things because human beings are risky and painful and boring. But this is the body of imperfect, broken, sometimes boring people who Jesus died to save and joined to himself. Not because of our merit, but because of his grace, like we've talked about already. And so when we say we need to abide in the church, that means we need to abide in the place where people point to the true hope we have of God the Son who became a human being and lived and died a uh, human life and a sacrifice for sin, rose again in victory so that we could be reconciled back to God and win eternal life for us in himself. Because this is the place where the word is lived out in all its fullness, where all the commands of scripture can find their fulfillment, being in the church and out active in the world as the church. This is where people are changed to become more like Jesus and where we find our eternal abiding hope in him. So if we want to abide in the truth, if we want to fulfill this task that John has for us, we abide in the word, we abide in the spirit, we abide in the church. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we worship you. Fully God, the second person of the Trinity, who became also fully human to make a new perfect humanity and to unite us to God the Father when we had been alienated from him. So I pray for all of us that we could abide in this truth, that you could be the loudest voice in our heads, that your community could be the people that we care about most, because in you is where we find life now and eternal life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.